ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals wearing a big floppy red Santa hat today. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Grinch Greenberg wearing another hat. We have a great show for you today. It's our last and greatest show of 2010. Stay tuned. Certainly is. And today we're taking a look back. We'll start with some of the milestones in medicine of 2010, from a few of the most promising research findings of the last year to some of the most notable retractions. We'll look at where we've been and where medicine is headed next. I want to retract two shows. (laughs) And later, our guest today is Dr. Everett Winslow Lovriant, former director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at Oregon Health Sciences University. His new book, Dr. Guilt, takes us back to the 1970s and 80s when a new wonder drug came out for hemophilia patients that turned out to be tainted with HIV. We'll talk about how this tragic mistake happened and explore to what extent it could have been avoided. And you can join in in that conversation by calling 888-MD-1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322, or email us at sol at reachmd.com, tweet us at handle reachmd, or leave a shout out on Facebook. And what end-of-year wrap-up would be complete without some news you can really use? Naturally, I'm talking about vodka and cheese fondue. Wahoo! Just in time for your holiday parties. We've been reading the British Medical Journal's Christmas issue, so you don't have to. So stick around, bring the ice cubes as we ring out the old, ring in the new, ring out the false, and ring in the true here on The Best Second Opinion Live in History. Nicely put. All right, Michael. Let's talk about some notable medical advances this year. Like our show. Like our show. A lot of solid research published in 2010, but we're focusing on three findings in three holy grail areas, HIV, Alzheimer's, and fertility research. So to start, one breakthrough that everybody's talking about lately is a pill that may lower the risk of HIV and AIDS infection. Investigators at Gladstone Institutes released their findings earlier this month. That's right. The study involved nearly 2,500 HIV-negative, high-risk gay men in six countries. The drug in use here was Truvada, which is already on the market. It was shown to reduce the risk of HIV infection by 44% in combination with condoms and counseling prevention services. But the risk of contracting HIV was even lower for those patients who actually took their daily dose, 73% lower risk than the placebo group. That's pretty high. It is pretty high. But just to clarify here, this drug is not a vaccine. It's pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, essentially a powerful pre-medication. So high-risk individuals load up with HIV antiretrovirals daily, which helps work against viral infection as soon as possible. But researchers worry about a false sense of security here, and clearly the CDC agrees because they're rushing to develop guidelines for the drug's use in HIV prevention. And right now, they're urging doctors to wait on its use until those guidelines are officially yeah, ready. But, but it's a ray of hope, and I like that. Yeah. So let's turn to the next breakthrough of 2010. In September, scientists announced there may soon be a blood test to detect Alzheimer's disease. Researchers at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center identified a group of more than two dozen proteins circulating in the blood that may be elevated in people with Alzheimer's. The isolated proteins are thought to be inflammatory byproducts from plaque accumulations in the brain. This panel of blood markers yielded a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 91% in recent tests. Mm. Well, back in 2007, Stanford researchers revealed a panel of 18 blood plasma proteins linked to higher risk of Alzheimer's. But the proteins in this recent study are found in blood serum, which is a little more accessible than plasma for blood testing 
and by extension might lead to faster screening and diagnosis of Alzheimer's in practice settings, which is pretty good. Right. And the next step is going to be to test this panel in a larger group of patients and find out whether these proteins also detect dementia at stages of mild cognitive impairment. So early detection is the real goal here. It's interesting, almost a little scary. It is scary, and I think that's actually going to be the really big next step right. is the moral issue of, well, once you're diagnosed early, what are you going to do about right. it? We have no treatment right now. And are you going to be tested or not? So let's move on to our third notable mention for 2010. In a year that saw the Nobel Prize go to Robert Edwards for his early work developing in vitro fertilization 32 years ago, a new achievement in human fertility may lead to better prediction power for embryonic viability. The common sentiment around IVF is that it's no sure thing for patients. We all know that. And best chances for a live birth are typically only 30% per attempt. But in October, Stanford researchers reported a 93% certainty rate in predicting which fertilized eggs were most likely to survive and thrive. Matt, we can have a child then. Using time-lapse microscopy and specialized software, researchers followed the development of 100 embryos for six days. They identified three specific parameters leading to successful embryos, all centered on the timing and duration of mitotic divisions early on in the blastocyst stage. This led to an automated algorithm tracking embryo development to better determine which early embryos would be successful past the blastocyst stage. Remember blastocysts from... Biology? I do. I did. Wasn't there a morula stage after that or yeah. something like that? Yeah, basic science. One interesting point here is that all of this tracking for viability occurs before any embryonic genes are even expressed, which indicates that embryos are likely predestined for survival or death before even the first cell division. That's pretty interesting. That's got to be a new... Is. Those are three great stories. Yeah, a new bit of all information right. there. Now, time to shift gears on these notable mentions, Matt, because the impact on medical science can be just as significant when research is released and then taken back. Taken back. I take it back. I didn't mean that. (laughs) According to the Journal of Medical Ethics, 788 English-language papers were retracted from the PubMed database between the years 2000 and 2010. Popular magazine The Scientist has put together a list of some of the most notable retracted papers from 2010. We have on the line, I hope, to talk to us about what made the list and what it means is Jennifer Axt. She goes by Jeff. She's the associate editor at The Scientist magazine and put together this year's list of top retractions. I think they retracted you, Matt. I'm pretty sure they Jeff, did. Jeff, welcome to Second Opinion. Hi, thank you. Uh, did you retract us? <laughs> no, no, no. Good, okay. <laughs> I hope we don't get retracted after this interview. But why don't we first talk about how this list was compiled? I mean, what were the criteria? So we basically divided it into two groups. One is the, the biggest retractions that we could find based on citations, so the most citations they had accrued since their publication. And the other one was just ones that didn't make the cut as far as the number of citations they got, but they still seemed notable based on the, the people who had authored them. They were big names in their field. And so basically I just did a, a, as big a search as I could. It's not easy to search for retracted literature. There's no formulaic way to do it. But looking on ISI, um, there's a good blog that covers a lot of retractions called Retraction Watch. Um, and just Google searches and tried to come up with the most comprehensive list we could. Okay, now three retractions caught our eyes, so let's focus on these for a few minutes. Number one was the 2005 cancer research suggesting that adult stem cells can spontaneously turn into cancer cells. Mm. Yeah, that, that was kind of an interesting finding, and it has been confirmed by some other groups. The traction may not be as significant as it might have been if it hadn't been confirmed by, by other studies, but basically that was one of the very first studies to show that adult stem cells can become cancerous. It was known that embryonic stem cells had this capability, and this was significant because some kinds of adult stem cells were being investigated for their use and treatment for conditions such as heart disease. So obviously, if they can become cancerous and cause tumors, that's going to be a little bit of a concern. 
What about the retraction of the Lancet's controversial autism and vaccine linking paper by Andrew Wakefield, who we had on the show, by the way? Yes, we have such a great show. We have everybody on this show, including you now. <laughs> We'd like to know more about that retraction. The Lancet retraction is obviously a big one. It was the most cited retraction on our list this year. Not surprising because it was published 12 years ago. It's, it's actually pretty rare for a paper to be retracted 12 years after it's published. And, and most people have heard of this story. It's a highly controversial story. Um, based on a, a sample of just 12 children, Dr. Wayfield and his colleagues made a link between the MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination, and autism. This caused parents to be afraid to have their children vaccinated, and, and had, some people have suspected that this may have led to the rise in measles that, that has been documented. So it, it was obviously a very, very controversial study when it came out 12 years ago. In 2004, 10 of the paper's 13 authors published a, re, a retraction of interpretation. So obviously there were some problems with the paper, but the official retraction didn't come through until this year after Britain's General Medical Council found Wakefield guilty of, of dishonesty and flouting ethical protocols, which, you know, uh, seems like a lot of the controversy around it stems from his unethical treatment of the children. It's but the, the findings are in question yes, as well. Yes, flouting should be illegal. <laughs> well, I don't know how long you've been on staff at The Scientist, but The Scientist must have been on this for the last 12 years. I mean, this thing had so much hype around it so much controversy, there must have been a lot of attention paid from your journal alone. Yeah, yeah, we did have quite a bit of coverage of it. And in fact, when the, when the official retraction came out, we simply did a blog post just because the story has been told so many times that the official attraction was, was almost anticlimactic. It wasn't the big story. The story was the, the initial link that was published and then the controversy surrounding that finding, the retraction of interpretation by the authors, in, uh, by 10 of the 13 authors in 2004, the final official retraction of the paper from the literature, like I said, was less of a big deal to us. Okay. One that really caught our eye was the six gene therapy papers retracted by one researcher, which made claims for breakthroughs in a variety of severe diseases from pancreatic cancer to PKU. Uh, apparently, there were duplicated tables that, that was a frequent issue. This was one guy. Was he just like faking everything? Was he nuts or was he just... Well, the one guy that you're referring to, Sabio Wu, he was the, the PI, the head uh, of the lab. And actually, he was cleared of any... Uh, uh, Misconduct. It was his two of his postdocs were, were fired from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and they were the ones who were found guilty of research misconduct. So it did seem that they were fudging data or faking data, duplicating figures, whatever it was that, that led to these retractions. But Dr. Wu himself was cleared of misconduct charges. Okay, good. Then anything we do wrong on the show, it's our producers, it's not us. Yeah. <laughs> misconduct is definitely lower down the chain. But what, uh, I mean, what does that spell for the research itself? Is that research not going to get the kind of funding it did? I mean, it sounds like this PI is going to have a difficult time being able to continue the work, even if there was something there to the gene therapy. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, any kind of retraction or charge of misconduct in your lab is going to have an effect on your, on your future research and funding, even if, if you yourself are cleared of, of any charges. And so that's, that's really unfortunate because there, there could have been a link there. But presumably other researchers will pick this up. Um, you know, the, the claim that there may be some kind of treatment for pancreatic cancer and, like you said, a cure for PKU, these are, these are big findings. And so even though these papers are retracted, Presumably, other groups have already picked up on the research, and, and hopefully something will come of it. Okay, so I have a question. Do these retractions get as much publicity as when they're originally published? It's like, you know, when somebody's accused of a crime, they're on the front page, but when they finally get off, it's on the last page of the paper, and nobody reads it. Well, it's interesting. It, it really depends. So retractions obviously get a lot of coverage because, like you said, it, it, it's interesting when, when people do things wrong, when things go awry in science, people want to know about it. It really depends on how big uh, the finding was originally and, and, more importantly, what journal it was published in. So oftentimes there are, you know, big findings in smaller journals, and those will get overlooked. We, you know, science outlets tend to cover nature, science, 
and the big medical journals like the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. So if they're in one of those smaller journals, they may get less coverage initially. But there are important papers that come out in these smaller journals. The scientists actually had a feature about this in August, breakthroughs from the second tier, about these lower journals that publish these papers that end up accruing many, many, many citations and are important and, and impactful in their fields. So when those get retracted then, they do get more coverage than they did initially. But the, the bigger ones, the natures and the sciences, they probably did get some coverage initially as well as when it is retracted. What about just the general number of retractions now compared to in the past? Are you seeing, from the scientist's point of view, coming across more retractions now? And if so, why do you think that is? It's really hard to estimate, but most um, attempts to estimate the numbers do think that it is increasing. And there are a couple of reasons this might be. I mean, there is a possibility that there's an increased rate of misconduct out there. But more likely, I think, there's an increased rate of detection. So we've got all these um, plagiarism, self-plagiarism and plagiarism detection methods in place now that journals can scan the, the literature and, and look for possible cases of, of misconduct or, or fraudulent science. So the detection rate is probably higher. And then in addition to that, it, it's also possible that with these detection mechanisms that are now in place, editors are going back further in time to look at past years to kind of purge the literature of any false science that's out there. This is actually a, a comment that Grant Steen made, the author of the Journal of Medical Ethics paper that you mentioned initially that found the 788 retractions. He thinks that there, there could be this effort to go back through the literature past, and so we're seeing these retractions now, even though the science came out way back when. Yeah, well, thank you. And we have to retract this story now. We're out of time, as asked. Thank you for talking with us. Jeff, associate editor at The Scientist magazine. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks. Pretty cool stuff. So, Michael, I think that's a pretty good segue to our next guest today. Joining us by phone is Dr. Everett Winslow Lovrion, former director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at Oregon Health Sciences University and author of the book Dr. Guilt. The book goes back to the 1970s and 80s when a new wonder drug came on the market for hemophilia patients but turned out to be tainted with HIV. Dr. Lovrion's book explores how that happened and why it happened. If you want to join in, call 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322, or email us at sol at reachmd.com. Dr. Lovrion, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you very much. I'm right here. Oh, hi. Dr. Lovrion, let's start with the most basic question. Why the book and why now? The book uh, was written because I had great remorse and felt uh, sorry or what I had given to patients, and doctors are supposed to <clears throat> prevent, prevent harm to their patients, and I caused a great amount of harm, so I had to get this off my shoulders. And why did it come out now? Well, I actually wrote it before, but when I wrote it before, I wrote it in first person, and the publisher didn't like it that way, so I rewrote it in third person, and that's why it came out now. I see. Well, why don't we take a step back and paint a picture for our listeners who may not know what life was like for hemophilia patients before the 1970s. We kind of want to know what things were like in treatment from your point of view as the director of the clinic you were at and how hemophilia treatment changed with the advent of the new wonder drug, as you put it. Before the uh, new medicine was uh, <clears throat> developed, most patients with uh, hemophilia didn't reach adulthood. They uh, had... Uh, recurrent episodic bleeding episodes throughout their childhood which caused deformities because the bleeding was into the joints especially the knees and ankles and elbows and then they were confronted with life-threatening bleeds into their head and therefore they often died and so there were very few 
there were few patients that lived into adulthood. And while they were alive, they had great agony and continued suffering, and they weren't able to go to school and get married and have a job, so life was miserable. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We're talking with Dr. Everett winslow Lovrian, former director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at the Oregon Health Sciences University and author of the book, Dr. Guilt. Dr. Lovrian, when did it first become clear at your clinic there was something wrong with the concentrate you were using? The first news we had was in 1982. At that time, the uh, patients uh, were all benefiting from this new, mirror, this new magic medicine, but we received word that, um, from New York that there were a couple of patients who had hemophilia who developed the same signs of a mysterious disease that had begun in the bathhouses of New York City. And that was our first indication, and we were worried about it at that time, beginning in 1982. How many years was that after the medicine was started? Well, the medicine became uh, really available uh, for significant use in 1971, so it was about 10 years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the clinic that you directed in particular? This is the Oregon Hemophilia Treatment Center, is that right? Right. Give us a time frame of when you were practicing there. I started there in 1968, 1968, and I was there until 1996. And one thing that kind of struck us was you mentioned the overall thesis of this book, kind of unburdening your shoulders. You titled the book Dr. Guilt, but one message that comes out in this book, as we're going to get to, is that there's an element of guilt, but there's also an element of responsibility or culpability, and it's not entirely on your shoulders alone. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. Yes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very willing to discuss this, but I do feel that the doctors are the closest to the patient's in the whole scheme, and they have the responsibility to protect their patients and bring them good care, and they use the best information that's available, but sometimes it's incorrect. And they, they, at the <clears throat> when we began having the access to this new medicine, we doctors knew that it was contaminated with hepatitis virus. But we reasoned that it was a lesser evil to uh, develop hepatitis than it was to die from a bleed into your head from hemophilia. It was therefore a trade-off, and we thought that the hepatitis was rather benign, but it turns out that that's not true. Those patients who survived HIV infection and didn't develop AIDS, but who were infected with hepatitis, nowadays are often developing cancer of the liver or liver failure and die from liver disease. So we, we were wrong in that sense, although we weren't malicious. So your intentions were good. I, I can imagine sitting down to have a discussion with colleagues like, well, here's hepatitis live virus in there, and we're going to be giving people that. That's got to be pretty difficult. It certainly was difficult, and it has to be a uh, both input from the patients and their families and all agree to this procedure or uh, just live the best you can without it, and that usually doesn't work. So the patients were aware that there was hepatitis virus? Yes, we always told them that. And at that time, of course, there were no vaccines for hepatitis, and it was difficult to uh, test whether a person had hepatitis 
because we didn't have an antibody test when we first started this, so we didn't know for sure who had it already, might already have hepatitis. And wouldn't heat treatment have killed the virus? Yes, it would have. Would it have destroyed the medication also? Well, <clears throat> that's an interesting point. Uh, it's now known that uh, if, uh, the, if the plasma that was used from the donors would have been heated properly and with the right stability, it would not have destroyed the clotting factor in the medicine. It could have been heated as as and destroyed hepatitis virus. The pharmaceutical companies said they didn't know how to do that, and that, that's true, they didn't. But it was known, it's been known since World War II, after Allen deve- developed a method by heat treatment to purify plasma. And if they would have purified, if they would have treated the plasma to eliminate the hepatitis virus, they would have also eliminated HIV because the same treatment kills both viruses and AIDS could have been prevented. Do you feel better after writing the book? Much better. I feel much better. This book was therapeutic for me, and I visited the families who had lost a husband or a son or a a uh, father from hemophilia, went to their homes, interviewed them, and we discussed whether they feel that the doctors are guilty or not. And I feel that I have got a big load off my shoulders by communicating their feelings to me, which I tried to develop in this book. Were any of the families angry still? They're angry at the pharmaceutical manufacturers. They're not angry at the doctors. We asked them question. My wife and I interviewed the families and asked that question to them directly. They, they are not in, they're not angry at the doctors. They thought the doctors were doing the best they could, but they are angry at the pharmaceutical manufacturers because they think they sacrificed safety for profitability. My question to you is, I mean, who are you angry at now, 30 plus years later? You know, in the book, towards the end, you talk about having felt like you violated the Hippocratic Oath, because of your right. role in this tragedy. But as you look upon it now, are you still angry with your own role in it, or do you feel that, if anything, the major culpability falls on the pharmaceutical industry's shoulders? I feel it falls on the pharmaceutical companies, but I am not angry at them. They brought out a very good medicine. It did what it's supposed to do. It relieved suffering and prolonged longevity, and but it was contaminated. I feel that they, that they d- were too much concentrating on on marketing and profitability and i'm also uh, feel that our government didn't properly regulate the pharmaceutical manufacturers we live in a society of free marketing and capitalism and the, the purpose of the pharmaceutical companies is to make money for their stockholders under the theories of capitalism <clears throat> and i think that the government should have regulated this because of human nature so that that they should have enforced safety rather than just profitability so i'm i'm not angry at the pharmaceutical companies i think they they are humans and they were doing what they could do and they did do a great thing uh, the medicines are in in a in the, throughout the world are largely invented in america not in other countries because of entrepreneurship as a result of free marketing and capitalism. 
if they w- didn't have that, we wouldn't have all these miracle medicines, and we're going to have to pay a price sometimes if they're not regulated. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you wrote the book and that you feel much better about it. Sure. Our guest today has been Dr. Everett Winslow Lovrien, former director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at Oregon Health Sciences University and author of the book Dr. Guilt. Dr. Winslow, thank you for joining us today on Second Opinion Live. It's been very much my pleasure, and I, <clears throat> I just finally want to want to add one statement, and that is that AIDS is a man-made disease that could have been prevented, and that's why I feel feel sorry about what I did. We will find out more in time, but thanks again for your time. Thank you. Bye. Well, Interesting. I don't know if I can uh, vouch for the last statement. It's still a controversial right. uh, element of research, for sure. It's definitely, there is no um, Well, let's go back to primum to non nocere, above all, do no harm. Yeah. You know, dermatologists in the past used to irradiate acne, and it was perfectly acceptable. And now I see lots of patients who are older now who are turning out with thyroid cancer and skin cancer and jaw cancer. And at the time, they were doing what they were taught was right. Well, just talk to the manufacturers of radium-coated plates. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I think it's really nice that he feels sad about it and remorseful. But There's absolution in the holidays. That's right. Yeah, it is a time for finding absolution. Now, I think as promised, it is time to put some holiday cheer some absolute. into things. Find our own absolution. So we're going to give you all the latest news you can really use. And nothing's more useful right now than holiday party survival strategies, namely where alcohol and cheese get involved. My favorites. My favorites. An old Danish myth from the days of yore claims that it's possible to get intoxicated by immersing one's feet in vodka. That's right, immersing one's feet in vodka. Well, according to a study just published in the Christmas issue of the British Medical Journal, in an effort to prevent students from wasting their time and possibly wasting good vodka, Researchers at Hillerod Hospital in Denmark actually set out to test this theory. Yes, they certainly did. This was quite a good study. As a matter of fact, I would have liked to have participated. The researchers soaked their own feet in a wash tub filled with three bottles of vodka for three hours. I think they got these flavored vodka. <laughs> they measured their blood concentrations every half hour. Now, let me just reiterate that the study was conducted in the hospital by the researchers, not on test subjects. These courageous soldiers of science also rated drunkenness, or what certainly sounds like drunkenness, through levels of self-confidence, urge to speak, and the number of times they desired spontaneous hugs on a scale of one to... <laughs> I want to hug every three seconds! Well, then you're perpetually you know? drunk. And the results, in case anyone still cares at this point, plasma ethanol concentrations remained below the detection limit throughout the experiment. No significant changes were observed in symptoms related to drunkenness, though the researchers did say that self-confidence and quote-unquote, urge to speak increased slightly at the start of the study, in their words, probably due to the setup, as they put it. <laughs> Conclusion, the feet are impenetrable to alcohol. Keep well, that in mind. that's a no-brainer. <laughs> Perhaps not to be outdone by the Danes, researchers in England and Zurich, Switzerland, conducted a controlled crossover study of 20 healthy volunteer adults to determine the effect of alcohol on the digestion of a rich meal. And what's richer than cheese fondue? Mm. Nothing is richer. The authors found that gastric emptying after a Swiss cheese fondue is noticeably slower and the appetite more suppressed if consumed with higher doses of alcohol. So drink lots of alcohol and you won't get as fat. You won't eat as much. That's the, the effect was not associated with dyspeptic symptoms, though. So you see, Matt, something to keep in mind the next time you decide to hit the Reach MD cheese fondue fountain. These were two phenomenal studies. Why didn't we do the whole phenomenal show on these studies. and do an interview with them? And does anybody know that there's a ton of calories in alcohol beverages? Yes, I mean, and it's wasted that maybe empty that's calories. that's part of the whole yeah. filling. 
Well, that about wraps it up for this show and this year, in Get fact. Get your feet out of the vodka, mat. But before we go, we're going to make one last stop over at the Save the Words website. We've been there before. We'll go there again, where the Oxford English Dictionary has put up lots of perfectly good neglected words for adoption. That is right. And I'm taking this one Excuse to me. the bank. Yeah, oh, there you go. Pick me. I will pick you. And I'm going to pick the word pamphagus. It means eating or consuming everything. Which reminds me of the ReachMD cheese fondue fountain. How convenient. How about you, Michael? Well, my word is squiriferous. It means having the character or qualities of a gentleman. Hmm. Matt, this word and I belong together and not you. It's not your word. (laughs) Squiriferous. You're a cheese. I'm a gentleman. No comment. All right, friends. Many thanks for a fabulous year. And we will see you in 2011. Signing off today. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz wearing a Santa cap. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg wearing a Santa hat. You can find an archive of this show or listen to past episodes of Second Opinion Live at reachmd.com slash SOL. Don't forget to look for us on Twitter or Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on your iPhone. Happy New Year to everybody. And thanks for listening. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMD160. And have a great 2011. A fantastic 2011. We'll be here, we hope. (laughs) Wearing Santa hats all year long. That's right.